in the speculative fiction community, we often talk about the joys of escaping into a new world and stepping away from reality for a moment. But sometimes, instead of escaping the truth, a story can force us to look it in the face. Welcome to the Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author K.S. Filioso, author of the Chronicles of the Bitch Queen series, the Agarda's Epilogues, and Blackwood Marauders. Her newest book, The Wolf of Orinyaro, released just last week. Kay and I talk about writing Watership Down fanfiction, the difference between storytelling and writing craft, and of course, the power of family. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Fantasy NK. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Thank you for having me, Travis. So I guess, first of all, a question I like to ask is, how did you fall in love with the fantasy genre and sort of what's been your journey on the way since then towards becoming a writer? Uh, So I started writing before I actually started in the fantasy genre. I've been writing since I was like six or seven years old. I don't remember. Yeah, it's just something I've been doing for a long time, mostly because it's it's like free entertainment. <laughs> and but for fantasy, I think I started with Watership Down. Ah, a because, classic. Yeah, because like, and that's uh, I started reading that, and then I got into Redwall from there. And Redwall was kind of like the beginning, like the <laughs> gateway drug. Yeah, that was that was one of my gateway drugs too. Uh, I think I've read almost all of them. Yeah, I, I had most of them up until the point like where I just grew tired of them. But yeah. Yeah, and I know uh, people like to give George R. R. Martin a hard time for food, but man, those Redwall feasts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they were so addictive. They're just like, it's just feasts and then fighting and then... <laughs> yeah, they really were. And I mean, to this day, I still have random Redwall songs stuck in my head because uh, oh. there were so many of them. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's kind of probably my main lasting memory from those books, actually. Yeah. So I guess uh, I think you mentioned uh, Watership Down. So how how was it, uh, I guess, starting out writing fan fiction? Uh, you've talked about. Um, this just seems like such a fascinating place to start for me. Uh, yeah, like I started writing fan fiction when I was like 14. And that was the first time I actually finished a novel length work of anything. I think it was the the stuff I was writing was going past a hundred thousand words. Oh wow. And, At fourteen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was I was posting them on fanfiction.net and people liked them. They were actually pretty popular at the time. Wow, that's so impressive. But yeah, they like it it well it used the world, but it had original characters. Okay. Is it still I'm assuming sticking with rabbits, or did you expand outside of that? Um, I didn't for a long time. Like, so I I wrote that one, and then I wrote a second book in that in that thing, and then yeah, I didn't write any fantasy until I was maybe seventeen. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the fantasy you started writing at seventeen was that what became the Agartes epilogues. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that poorly. Yeah, that that was actually like the first iteration of Giant's Eye. 
Okay. Jaith's eye. I've been saying it in my head, Jaith's eye, this whole time. <laughs> okay. There's probably going to be a lot of that throughout this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I made, I've made a lot of names up, so <laughs> could go either way. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess reading kind of what you've written online before and just from what I know about you, so you grew up in the Philippines, right? Yeah. And uh, you spent most of your childhood there? Yeah, 13 years. 13 years, okay. So I guess I'm curious, like, what was your journey? Like, how what was it like growing up in the Philippines? And then how did you transition over to, did you go directly to Canada from there? Yeah. Yeah, like growing up there, I I guess people expect me to say it was horrible or something, and maybe I'm just looking at it with rose-colored glasses. But like it was it was great. Since even though you didn't have like access to the resources that you have in a first world country, like I I think there was like a lot of adventure and a lot of just making your own entertainment kind of thing, and. The the biggest thing there is that the, the Philippines is a very religious country, but at the same time, we believe in the old animism stuff. So like there are spirits everywhere and you have to be careful not to offend them. And like even the older people believed, believed in those things. So it was like living in a fantasy world in a way. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah like like all the like the monsters and the spirit stuff. <laughs> yeah what what kind of monsters and spirits uh is kind of in the culture down there i know like here i'm mostly only familiar with i don't know vampires werewolves things like that i assume maybe it's a little different yeah we we have something called the aswang which is like a ghoul slash werewolf kind of monster that it, it's more of a catch free catch all term because in, in the philippines like it's a lot of different uh different islands so the people have have similar beliefs but like it's very different there's a lot of cultures in that one place so we say aswang and then then there's lots of different kinds of aswang and like one of the popular ones is the mananangal which is it leaves its half its body behind and then it flies around and then it sucks unborn babies That is horrifying. (laughs) Horrifying, and that's the thing. Like, like living there when we were kids, say they they would just talk about, oh, there's like this mananangal flying around, so your kids just stay at home and don't go out. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that would definitely keep me indoors. Yeah, (laughs) like even the grown-ups believed it too. Like some of the grown-ups, if they start talking, you can see in their their faces they believed it, so you believed it. Wow. Yeah, uh, I I would definitely uh, be a good kid and stay inside. Although, uh, for the most part, I kind of was anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I stayed indoors and I wrote and I read what I could. (laughs) Were were you mostly reading outside the fantasy genre at that point? Or did did you start reading more in the fantasy books? Uh, uh, In the Philippines, I was just mostly reading classics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Are there any like favorite classics that you had? Uh, I love the Jack London stuff as well. Oh, okay. as I've read Mark Twain and who was uh, the author of Little Women, Louisa May Alcott. Basically, anything that I could find in the bargain bin. <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that's probably 
a great foundation for someone uh, who develops into being a writer, like learning from the greats. Yeah, like uh, when I was starting out, I was copying a lot of their sentence structures, just uh, kind of mimicking the way they would write. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Uh, I've heard uh, some writing advice that I don't know how much I subscribe to this theory, but that one way of kind of getting in the zone is to pick like a really talented author or an author you admire and just kind of like hold the book in front of you and type out some of the sentences and like feel what that feels like. Yeah, I think at some point you have to start developing your own, but like just trying to get a feel for what good writing sounds like, like the flow of it. Right. Um, well, what eventually took you up to Canada? Oh, well, my parents immigrated. Like, they've been planning for a while. And then, yeah, like, there just wasn't a lot of opportunities back in the Philippines for them. They were both engineers. And even as engineers, we lived in the slums. So, <laughs> that they, like, it's difficult to get ahead there if you don't have contacts or networks. or It's a very different world. Yeah, and that's that's actually I think originally what you were pursuing as well, right? Engineering, I think yeah. civil engineering. Yeah. Okay. How did you switch over from civil engineering to writing? So I got laid off, and then I had an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like I, I, it was not like jumping to a new job. It, it was kind of a bad situation where my cousin was taking care of my kids. And then she had to find another job. And then, like, we lived in a very inconvenient area. So, more or less, I just fell back into writing for a bit and just to see where it went. Childcare is uh, really expensive. I know it is here. It probably is there as well. Yeah, oh, it's very expensive here. When I was working, it's basically half my paycheck was going into childcare. Wow, that's that's insane. There wasn't a lot left by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, no better time to try pursuing your dream, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, talking about the writing then, I've seen you mention a bunch of times online before about the power of stories and the crafts that goes into writing. Uh, so what exactly do you think makes a good story? Uh, what makes you look at a work of writing and say, wow, that is some excellent writing craft? So craft for me is the things you need to put together for any story. And I always admire craft when it can do the story justice. Like a powerful story for me is something that carries a message or something true to the author's experience that now they're trying to share with the world. I'm pretty much a nerd about story mechanics, but what really makes me stop and pay attention is a story that bears a little bit of the writer's soul. So that's the stuff that you can't really copy or recreate. It's kind of unique to the author. Yeah, that makes sense. It's always about the heart of the thing. Like I can't say exactly, but like if I see it, I know it. <laughs> right. Are there particular authors that jump to mind when you think about that, that really pour their soul into their work? Oh, Robin Hobb. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pours her soul into her work and yeah. tears your soul right out too. Yeah. I, I think she, like there's that old saying, no, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that before, but that's very appropriate. Oh yeah. It's, I've heard it around. <laughs> 
Yeah, I I guess I uh, are there you say you're a nerd for story mechanics. So like what what kind of story mechanics uh, really get you excited or like what how, how do you recognize good story mechanics? How do you approach story mechanics? Any of that? Uh like again, it's it's really in a way that makes the story better. Because I've I've read stories that are like the the mechanics are not great, but the story is still good enough that you know you're still hooked. Maybe a great example of that is some of the creepy pasta going around online. If you've read any of those, <laughs> like they, they they're not put together great, but the story is really good, right? Yeah. But yep. but good craft would then be elevating that story and making it into such a good experience that you can't look away. Okay, interesting. Uh, so would you kind of separate writing craft from storytelling in a way? Yeah, definitely. Huh. Like uh, the craft is something that you can learn. Like you can learn to get better at dialogue, you can learn to get better at describing things. But th- there's a fair amount of like art in story where it's like you, you have to have an eye for tension and where where it's going. Yeah, and that's that's something before I started really paying much attention to, I guess, like the actual writing side of things is I just assumed that writers were like these brilliant artists who sat down and a story just flowed out of them and that was it. But there's like a lot of grueling labor in it. Oh, yeah. Like sometimes there's even that you write a story, but it doesn't have a story. You just went through the motions of writing it, and then at the end of it, you're like, okay, this thing doesn't have a story, so I have to go back and rewrite it, knowing what the story is. Right. So kind of just like discovering the story as you write, and then honing and whittling it down and whipping it into shape? Yeah. Is that your writing process, or do you do something different? Uh, More or less. Like, it's very different for everyone. But I've I've done it that way where I didn't know where it was going and then by the end of it I'm like yeah it went nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So, so I just threw it out. <laughs> oh man, that's gotta hurt just throwing yeah. away those words. Yeah, I've done it quite fairly often. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Well, so something that interests me about your writing, and I guess maybe this is more on the storytelling angle than the actual craft. But it definitely, it doesn't feel like, you know, your standard uh, Western, medieval, European type setting. Um, so how how did you go about making it feel different? Uh, I mean, obviously, you had the experience to draw on, but what, what were you hoping would make it into your writing? Uh, for like, for my culture or... Um, I, I guess maybe from Filipino culture, what are some details you put in that maybe uh, some people who aren't that knowledgeable like me might not pick up on at first glance, but they make it ring a bit more true? So it, like, I have a hard time separating my culture from like, so it's basically in everything I do. But the standout one in my story that is very Filipino is the focus on relationships. Okay. So like the the like in Filipino culture we're very community and family oriented. So like if you can see my writing a lot of it is like really digging into relationships and knowing how people relate to each other. So like a great example is if I've always had people asking why Talian doesn't just ditch her husband, why 
you know, she's holding on to like her father's words and stuff like that. And the, the answer is there. It's like Filipino culture. You just, you just, you just don't say goodbye to someone that you're supposed to be tied to, like a family member. And so I guess that's that's a perfect segue into talking about your new novel, The Wolf of Oranyaro. What was the origin for that story? Was was that the idea, the uh, separation of the husband and wife? Yeah, something like that. Like there were there were a bunch of ideas that I kind of put together. The first thing is that uh, Queen Talion is actually the daughter of the secondary antagonist in one of my previous books. Oh, okay, that that was your Agartes epilogues. Yeah, I think it was in book two, okay. Ina's Breath. And then the setup for that, I thought, was perfect for the beginning of her story. And at the same time, it was kind of like a a what if, like a desire to explore strength and resilience from the point of view of a woman who has to deal with the same challenges as a male chosen one. So it's a typical hero's journey written from the point of view of a woman and then just like just going crazy with a with the possibilities there i noticed one of the main themes that stood out to me in the wolf of oranyaro was that motherhood you know it's so central to queen talion's identity so i guess is that something that you specifically sought to include or did that just happen from the story i it kind of just happened because like i was looking at talion as a whole her child is part of her world and her experiences. And since my writing is very much a, almost like a character study, so it's it's part of her life, her being a mother. So how she looks at herself as a parent is then, it's it's used in contrast to how she was raised by her father. So the, the father-daughter relationship is kind of like, it it's being compared to the, mother-son relationship. So uh, as a mother yourself, do you put much of yourself in Italian? Uh, she, she pretty much draws from a lot of my own experiences. <laughs> All the characters do. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess uh, that's a good point. It's probably impossible to write a character that doesn't have any basis in yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what other themes did you seek to explore in The Wolf of Oranyaro? I think the main one is the the very the it, it tackles a lot of what it means to grow up in a society with very rigid parental expectations. So it's for many Asian cultures, we're raised with this idea of harmony, family, community being more important than self. So it's a constant source of struggle, especially when there's like toxic behavior involved. So how do you yeah. reconcile yourself and what you want and what will make you happy? and your responsibilities, as well as your place in society. Yeah, no, that uh, finding yourself and where you fit in in society and your role in it, I think that's one of the most powerful themes. And probably most books touch on that to a certain extent. Yeah. So in, in my book, it kind of plays with the the expectations of parents and then like not not quite knowing whether it's them or you that's talking anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know uh, the whole time I was reading, I guess you, there were some flashbacks, but even outside of that, you kind of felt Talion's father uh, as like this presence in everything she did. Yep. 
I assume that was very much intentional. <laughs> yeah, it's very intentional. Like one thing maybe that is important to notice is that her father's already dead. Like even before the beginning of the first book, her father's already dead. So the the relationship there never actually grows or develops set in stone, which means it's part of her personality at this point. It's part of who she is. So it's something that she has to deal with on her own. Yeah. And I, I found that to be pretty powerful in the book where she's now, everything's on her own. She's just come off of years of trying to hold together her nation on her own um, and put up a brave front, but also hold together like her family unit. Yeah. So one thing for me that uh, whenever I'm talking with other fans of the book, uh, I always hear this rivalry between Kine and Rael. Or first, I guess, are those how you say their names? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay. So I won't sound like an idiot for the rest of this. Um, so uh, I guess, how, how did those characters come about? Because they're pretty different from each other. Well, Rael is actually designed to basically be Italian's complete opposite in every way. Yeah. <laughs> I very much designed a character that would just irk her. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so it, it's, it's just wonderful writing them together. And then Kain is kind of in the same way. He, he acts kind of like as the mentor character in this story where he points out stuff that's obvious to her. But like, like oh, sorry, he points out stuff that's obvious, but it's not obvious to her. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure about a rivalry there. I think people just kind of made it up on their own. Well, uh, you see, so uh, cards on the table here. I agree with you. I think there is no rivalry because Rael is clearly the winner in any competition yeah, exactly. there. Exactly. I mean, a wise and noble ruler, he, he may have just packed up and abandoned all his responsibilities, his kingdom, his family, but, you know, I'm sure he had his reasons. And uh, what's so special about a con artist on the streets, right? Team Rael all the way. Plus, Rael is a really good looking guy. Ah, yeah, so. I mean, I imagine them both as good looking, but Ryo obviously is the more handsome one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, yep, that's canonical. Then Ryo is more handsome than kind. I think I, I've said it in the book, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, so yeah. it is actually canonical. Yeah, it, it is canon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Uh, and I think I'm kind of propping up Team Ryo on my own, so I have to be a fan for him. Yeah. <laughs> um. So another thing, I guess, kind of on the meta level that interests me about uh, The Wolf of Oranyaru is it was initially self-published, and now this is its launch under Orbit uh, picked up for traditional publishing. Uh, so what what was that process like? I would say it was overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> it, it all happened really fast because like, w what happened is that I just got an email from the the guy who's now my editor Bradley saying that he read the book and he loved it and he was asking if he, I could formally submit it to Orbit and then like a month later they're like they have an offer and then I was scrambling to get an agent <laughs> I mean that's got to be a good position to be in right like you have a book deal on the table and then you find an agent that's kind of the opposite direction most people go yeah, it was like you kind of go from not thinking that you'd ever be published, and then a month later, you're like you're holding this. There's this book deal in your email. 
Yeah, that that's that's just incredible. Uh, I mean, what was that like? What, what were you first thinking when you got that email about the book deal? Oh man, <laughs> I think I think my brain just stopped. <laughs> I guess I remember the first thing I did was like I went to. Like I went to my husband, I sent him a screenshot. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I, and then I think I told you guys after. <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing uh, pretty soon after you're like, okay, you can't tell anyone, but this happened. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah. I think we freaked out for you. Yeah. The, the crazy thing about that was like, I think Hugh was uh, encouraging me to contact agents. And so like the day before I actually got the book deal in my email, I sent an email to Hannah saying that, yeah, Orbit's been interested and so-and-so. And then the, the morning after I got the email from Orbit, so I sent her another email. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, she probably thinks this is fake. <laughs> she's like she probably thinks I'm pulling her leg, so just so you know, she can read my manuscript. Yeah, that's that's incredible. You, as an agent, you probably don't get many people who are like, "Hey, so uh, can you take a look at my stuff?" It started to get some interest. Oh, uh, by the way, next day I've got a deal. So <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I think it was less than twelve hours too. Oh wow, that's that's just incredible. And then I sent I sent her a third email because I realized that I was emailing her query inbox, which you probably didn't <laughs> open every day. So I sent her a third one saying, I've been emailing your query inbox and I think this is your regular mail. <laughs> that's I mean, that's gotta be probably the strongest query she's ever received. Yeah. And then and then she replied then and then she, she just asked for my manuscript and then she read it in a day. So by wow. Monday, I had an offer for representation from her. Wow, that's that's incredible. That's that's a really fast turnaround time. Yep. <laughs> I know one of the draws of self-publishing, right, is you have absolute total control over everything. And you even actually published this book, Self-Publishing, back in 2018, I want to say. Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of things can we expect to change in the story? Uh, was it just kind of a light polish? Is there significant additions? It's uh, 10% longer. Oh, really? So is that additional scenes or just... Yeah, uh, there's okay. a lot of uh, additional scenes that kind of just like uh, deepen some of the character arcs. There's a, a couple more flashbacks. And the book actually starts, like the, the Orbit version starts way before the, the self-published version does. So it starts when Talion is still in Jin Saiyang. Ah. And it actually shows her receiving the letter from her husband. Okay. Before in the self-published version, that was just a flashback. Right. So is there a lot of, I guess, restructuring of existing scenes like that? Like converting flashbacks into present time? or? Uh, not too much. I think it was, it's just mostly new scenes padding up that, like adding to that 10%. Okay. So what you're saying, I'm definitely going to need to brush up and read the book again before yeah. I even worry about going to the second book. Yes. Uh, fantastic. Uh, and you know, I'll probably, uh, there's an audiobook version being made, right? Yes. I will probably be picking that up. Maybe in addition to the physical, because let's be honest, I'm definitely putting one of these on my shelf. Yeah, I love the cover art. <laughs> 
The cover art is gorgeous. I uh, and I think I saw a Twitter thread from you a while back uh, talking about like there's a lot of power in like the small details in it. Uh, it's really mostly because it's uh it's the first time I've seen a Filipino woman on the cover of an epic fantasy book. Yeah, and it's like it it just blew my mind because this is the genre that I've loved to read for the last couple of like couple of decades, I guess. And yeah. And even, uh, I think you were saying like the, the sword itself, like that's all like fairly accurate to what Talion would actually be wielding. Yeah. The, the sword actually is her dad's sword. It doesn't show up until the third book. Okay. Well, I, I guess more accurate in terms of the design, maybe not when she's necessarily holding it. Because the cover's point is to kind of not necessarily show a specific scene, right? Yeah. Yeah, like Orbit asks, asks for details for the design of it. So the the sword is a, a campilan, a Filipino sword. Okay. What a... Uh, I guess for people like me who love swords but don't actually know anything about them, uh, I guess what, what's different about a kampilan? Kampilan. Kampilan. So the the handle is usually shaped like a creature, like uh, so either like a dragon or so, like something, some creature. <laughs> okay. And then the tip of the sword is hooked. Which they say is just makes it easier to disembowel things. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like the first glance on this cover, it's basically she's Filipino. Yeah, that's that's just incredible. And I mean, it it's a cover in my opinion that pops too. Like it, it just looks great. Yeah. When I saw it, I wasn't kidding about my reaction when I first saw it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, is they got a very talented artist for it, that's for sure. Yeah. So uh, you talked like part of what was being tightened up in the traditionally published version of the book is the character arcs. Would you say that The Wolf of Orinario and really all of your writing, I suppose, is more character-driven than it is plot-driven? Uh, like th my definite focus is character. So we, like I always say character driven because it is written for people who are looking for character in their reading material in particular but it's very plot driven as well. Right. And I mean every book has to have characters and every book has to have a plot. At least for yeah. me I I struggle in trying to figure out what the difference is between them. I I don't know where do you draw the line. For me character driven basically it has to have a complete character arcs. So like the, the the character itself is the plot in a way. So I can like there can be a character driven without plot where but but basically the character has to learn something and has to you know go through growth of some sort. Yeah, that that makes sense. I uh, I know at least what I used to think was if a book's character driven, it means it's kind of slice of life and there's not much plot, but there's really no reason why there can't be tons of epic plot in there as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's 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 the, my, the approach I do or like it it has that but it does still have the traditional fantasy epic plot where like with villains and stuff and there's traditional climax and everything. There's definitely all of that in spades <laughs> in the Wolf of Warren <laughs> So one thing that's fairly unique is 
all of these books are kind of set in the same universe, like you were saying, like the minor antagonist from your original trilogy shows up as kind of the father figure in this new one. So I guess, first of all, the world is called Agos Agen. Is that how you say it? Agos Agan. Yeah. Agos Agen. Agan. Okay. I'll probably still butcher that a little bit, but I'm closer to being correct. Why set things in a shared universe like that? Uh, why not have totally distinct trilogies? Uh, I just I love going off tangent with characters. So like when you're when you're making a minor character pop out, that means you're adding problems and you're adding like you're you're rounding them up as characters. And like I I noticed that some of them they have really good stories. I'm not, like they're not the major characters, so I just go and then I explore things from that from that perspective in a different novel. And it just makes for this really living breathing world kind of thing i mean what what's like the kind of cliche saying like everyone's the protagonist of their own story uh so it's really cool to see that like in literal stories yeah exactly what other plans do you have with this world Uh, i think you've said before like in maybe a reddit ama that most of your fantasy writing you plan to be set in this same universe yes and no (laughs) so like my future writing project right now, like with the Wolf of Orinyaro, it's set in Jinsaiyang, which is like a pre-colonial longing kind of world where I pretended that the Philippines was not colonized and was just influenced by other Asian nations instead. So what I'm working on right now is more post-colonial Philippines. So is that, uh, I guess, set like forward in time or or is that totally totally different world is that what you're saying yeah it's it may be a different world i'm not gonna say much (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough yep um yeah want to avoid spoilers or anything like that um now uh is is this the same work uh you've mentioned maybe exploring like some gunpowder fantasy uh yeah okay that's that's thrilling. I love <laughs> I love gunpowder fantasy, kind of like that earlier technology era. Yeah, it's uh like post-colonial Philippines is basically uh, there's a lot of European influence there, so it it's a little bit different than what I've been writing so far. Yeah. Um so would you ever uh I guess other than your work which may or may not be in the same universe, have you ever considered just something totally different, writing maybe in a different genre or something like that? Oh, I I have a bunch of those of those things. Like I have a kind of an urban fantasy werewolf kind of kind of uh, series that I can't uh, that I've abandoned. Oh no! Permanently yeah. abandoned? I'm not sure when I'm gonna be able to pick it up again. Yeah, that's fair. There's only so much time to uh, pursue certain projects. Yeah, like I, I'm pretty much open to writing anything that comes to mind. I have a few that are fantasy, but they're not epic fantasy. Uh, yeah, I just haven't had the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, writing writing takes a lot of time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I know, like maybe you're not continuing it, but I'm curious. So, was that your Black Dog series? Yeah. And so I looked at the cover earlier today, and that is a terrifying dog. <laughs> <laughs> So that that's another that, in that series about the Aswang as well. 
Okay, so kind of drawing on some of that same lore yeah. or mythology. Yeah, but it's more urban fantasy, Manila style. Gotcha. Because I, I saw that cover and my only thought was, but the dog is terrifying and dogs are so wonderful and perfect and loving. <laughs> it, it's uh, The story is about a boy who basically he rediscovers his family and there's more to that than he realized. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, what what books have you been reading recently? Anything good that you'd like to recommend or talk about? Uh, the last book I read that was awesome was Realm of Ash by Tasha Suri. Ah, rub it in, rub it yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I recently uh, read Empire of Sands uh, in preparation for Realm of Ash coming out, and I loved it. So now I get to be super jealous seeing people get the advanced reading copies online. Yeah, I just realized that when we're talking about this, it's it's like months after it already came out. <laughs> yeah. But it's about to come out next week. <laughs> That's okay. So listeners, go ahead and buy it because you don't have to wait. You don't have to suffer like me. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, yeah, I haven't been reading too much. I've yeah. been binging on uh, BoJack Horseman episodes. Oh, I you know I've heard I've heard good things about it. Um, I've also heard that it's kind of emotionally tough to binge that show. Yeah, I binged it, <laughs> <laughs> but I've all, I like I also binge Robin Hobb novels and Guy Gabriel K novels. Oh, oh wow! You you really are a glutton for punishment. Then yeah, I, I am. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was even I was talking with someone recently, and and it brought up like. Some of my favorite books are the ones that make me feel a little bit terrible. Like they really kind of pull on your heartstrings. Yeah, I think I'm the same. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you work some of that into your writing as well, so that's that's obviously rubbed off some. I think it's it's like a way of making sense of the world, just kind of like like the op- like the opposite of escapism, but the same purpose. Okay, yeah, that's 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 an interesting way to put it. You're, you're like you're you're instead of escaping the truth, you just kind of look at it in the face until it feels okay. Yeah, I I mean that's that's something I guess more recently that I found with even just like speculative fiction where people are like, oh, you know, escapism, like forget about real life for a while. But I mean, there's tons of heavy issues tackled and things that can like help you process, you know, the crap that is the real world. Yeah. Like because the thing with stories is that they have a point. Like if it's if it's a bad story, then obviously like you're gonna have a lot of suffering and it doesn't go anywhere. But like when you're consuming a good story, you're seeing a lot of suffering, but you're you're kind of hoping that at some point the author tells you why, yeah. <laughs> which is not the same in real life. So I I think that's that's the escapism there for me. Like the suffering has a purpose. Yeah, man. If somebody could tell me why in real life, that'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, another thing I like to ask kind of towards the end of these interviews is uh, what's something you've been ridiculously excited about lately? I mean, it can be a book, it can be a show, it can be something totally unrelated in the real world, just whatever. Uh, well, I've been playing World of Warcraft with some of the bloggers <laughs> and we've been doing a lot of dungeoning. 
Okay. That's mostly what I've been busy with. <laughs> World of Warcraft is probably like, I don't know, like my biggest gaming experience ever, at least in video games. I play a lot of board games. Uh, so I, I definitely go way back with that. Yeah, like we we picked it up in the summer when the classic came out. I ha- I haven't played it since like for a long time, nearly a decade. So it's just been good uh revisiting old those old places and getting nostalgia. Yeah, that cuz it's the classic that's the like kind of they reset everything back to the original game. Is that what it was? Yeah. So it's it's all back to all the hard the the harder modes. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear it's it's changed a lot in the last decade or so. I know I'm always the guy that takes forever to get from like level one to level five because I don't know, I just like running around and jumping in circles and exploring stuff. Yeah, you should really join us. <laughs> I I would be holding you guys back so much. <laughs> oh, we do it ourselves already. There's been some great uh, wipes. Oh man, yeah, I. Uh, I have lots of memories of the time spent as a ghost trying to find my body again. Oh, we still do a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was one, like, there's times where, like, somebody's pet causes a wipe. (laughs) Oh, no. There was was another time where, like, you could just almost see our death happen in slow motion. (laughs) You could just see all the mobs just going towards us. They were like, oh, crap. Uh, yeah, yeah. Been great. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what what role are you in the party? Are you like the tank, the healer? I'm playing a shaman. Shaman. Okay. So I like I'm kind of basically circulating. Sometimes if there's no healer, then I I'm the healer. Yeah. So that that means I guess if this is classic, that means you guys are horde. Uh yeah. Yes, I always loved horde. Yeah, I'm playing a male orc. <laughs> all right. All right. Which I think I I think I did just to uh, just to troll one of your guild uh, one of your blog mates. <laughs> really, I feel like there's but a story I'm, behind that. Well, well I, I'm calling I'm calling the orc Agos, <laughs> which is probably doesn't mean much to anybody who hasn't uh, read the book. But if you've read the book, <laughs> okay, so so you're trolling wall. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I trolled her. I, I made the character Agus, and now I'm stuck with him. <laughs> so we've been kind of a low-key role-playing the Wolf of Orinyaro, because our, our guild is called the Wolves of Orinyaro. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, is anybody, I guess I have to ask, Rael or Kain, or no? <laughs> so I'm, I, I also made a character called Rael. Okay. Um, we're not sure who Kain is. Somebody took the name Kain already. <laughs> <laughs> so we just occasionally run into him in the world. We see him out there. <laughs> well, that's kind of uh, the reverse of how it is in the book, I guess, where you occasionally run into Rael doing his own thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I was always the guy in World of Warcraft who would try to make like the really fantasy names by adding accent marks over all the letters. Uh I don't even want to think about what my names were actually pronounced. <laughs> yeah, I, I was that guy. Well, that is about all of the questions I have for you. This has been absolutely wonderful, Kay. It was great to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you. I've been really excited when I saw your podcast, Something New. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. So I I have big dreams for it, certainly. And if it means I get to talk to like some of my favorite authors like you, then I mean, that's all worth it right there. Uh, it's an honor to be one of the authors that you interview. <laughs> well, this, this has been wonderful, Kay. Uh, thank you so much. You can find K.S. Vilioso on Twitter as at K underscore Vilioso or at our website, www.ksvilioso.com. The Wolf of Oranyaro is available now in ebook, paperback, and audio. Check the show notes for links to all of them. If you like deeply personal, character-driven stories with a focus on family, or just feel like scaring yourself with creepy mages and insane dragons, The Chronicles of the Bitch Queen is the story for you. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thefantasyn. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get access to bonus content, like the -the behind-the-scenes series of articles we're writing about our interview process. That's all for this week. See you next time.